Shepherd, and this is my weekly podcast to share the story of what happened in the murder of my cousin Debbie Carter in our small Oklahoma town, and how finding out that those men convicted of that crime were innocent, and how that turned into a quest for truth and accountability. In the first several episodes, I've tried to help you see this through the lens that my family was experiencing all of this. And by now, several years have passed, and Ron and Dennis are in prison where we felt like they should be. But in 1995, a decision would be handed down by the Eastern District Courts that would create what I call a tsunami effect in that this earth shattering thing happens um, and we have no idea we never felt the ground move we didn't know what was happening but yet at some point everything begins to disappear out from underneath our feet and then a tidal wave hits and washes everything away and so this decision that came down from the courts was that Ron Williamson had not received um, competent counsel and that the hair analysis was not reliable science And so, during this time also, remember, between this decision and what would happen a few years later in 1997, that is about the time that I went to do my interview with the district attorney's office as well as Detective Smith. And it always made me wonder if this was maybe why they were kind of, you know, evasive with me because they thought maybe I was asking about you know in regards to some of the things that were going on but I had no idea like I had I was clueless as to how any of this worked or um, any of it would affect you know um, the case at all and so I mean, even in the article, it says um, the district attorney is quoted as saying that, you know, had every assurance that the Oklahoma Attorney General Drew Edmondson himself would handle the immediate appeal of C's ruling in the Tenth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals in Denver. Says Peterson went on to say, I'm flabbergasted, bumfuzzled, angry, confused, and a lot of things. I have had this case go through so many appeals and such scrutiny without ever having anyone question the conviction and then this opinion to come down. It simply doesn't make sense. 
so again, like never really thought anything about it, had the assurance of the district attorney, had the assurance of the attorney general. I mean, you know, shouldn't, shouldn't be any kind of issue. And so not really worried about it. So during this time also, I am um, finishing up my undergraduate degree and my minors in criminal justice. So we got to visit the prison. And of course I was going to sign up to go. And but I'd never been to a prison. I'd never even I've never been inside of jail, much less a prison, a maximum security prison. And so going to McAllister where the prison is is located as you drive into the town or you know that part of the town there is a statue of like a a big bucking bull and um it has kind of a figure of a, a prisoner cowboy prisoner because they used to have a big prison rodeo there and the prison sits off the highway kind of on a hill and from a distance it looks very um clean and you know pristine it's white but as you drive down the street and get closer more of the real character of the place you know shows itself where you can just see layers upon layers of paint that has been painted over other chipped paint and the windows were foggy and really spooky and I remember as we entered the prison there was a sign that said enter at your own accord your life will not be negotiated for and I remember thinking like oh god do I go back to the van or I, I hope you know nothing goes awry while I'm in here and our tour started out in the big what they call the prison rotunda which is it's just big open area and I remember that the your footsteps echoed incredibly loud there and hanging from the ceiling was um, these huge paintings that were done by name of man like Conrad Mass I think and he was referred to as the crazy artist but there were these 10 by 16 murals they were painted on bed sheets or something that he did that hung from the prison rotunda and actually um I think they have like bullet holes and stuff in them. Which is kind of crazy from some riots. And, you know, we went on to the rest of our tour and, and toured around. And eventually we come to a part of the prison that's called the H unit, which is where death row is housed. And it's kind of an infamous place in that the entire unit is underground and so all of the you know electric and plumbing and all that is run overhead and if you know if you've ever been inside of a jail or anything and you've heard those doors close it is something you don't ever forget and it rings especially true in that underground fortress that's there 
and it's all concrete and I think that they're in lockdown about 23 hours a day and we continued our tour you know and at one point we all are entering this room and there's kind of a you know a couple different levels that have chairs on them and everybody's kind of crowding in and sitting down and I kind of took a place off by the door and sat down and what we were looking at was through the glass at we were in the death chamber and I was very interested in this process and you know what would happen and I just listened as they explained you know what the process was and I remember feeling really let down when I left that area because it just didn't seem to be adequate for what he had done to her it just seemed so medical and staged it just just didn't seem and I don't know what I wanted I don't know what I I don't know what I thought it should be I just remember feeling like that wasn't it and so as we continued our tour I remember the line kind of stopped and nobody was really going anywhere and one of the instructors who was kind of our chaperone that day came to the back of the line and and I did not know he was not my instructor I did not know him I mean I knew who he was but I knew he was a former police officer but I did not really know him like that and I certainly didn't think he knew me but he came to the back of the line and he said come with me and I thought maybe I was getting in trouble for talking in line or something I don't really know and he had me go up and kind of cut in front of everybody else and enter this little area where if you turned around and looked back the way you came there was like a I think there were 12 by 12 concrete cells on each side outside and there were a couple of inmates maybe in each one that were playing handball and then if you turned around and looked back the other way there was like a control panel with a, a guard there and I guess they can open and close, you know, the doors and things. And this instructor that was with me pointed to the second level, kind of on the left side in the corner. And he said, do you know what you're looking at? And I said, no, I don't, I don't guess I do. And he said, Ron Williamson sits in that cell right now. And I remember my heart kind of dropping into my stomach I I didn't know what to think I didn't know really how to feel or what I was supposed to do or if I was supposed to do anything and I was like really and he said yeah and he said you know he's probably screaming and banging his head in that cell right now you know like he's crazy And I remember in that moment, 
wishing him all the hell that I possibly thought that place could bring him. And it it wouldn't be too much longer after that that I would find out that I got exactly what I wished for. And then I'd have to come to terms with that. But not long after my visit at the prison, there was a, I guess, so I'd, I went ahead, I'd graduated with undergraduate school in like May and sometime later that summer of 97, another decision by Judge C came down and had issued Ron a new trial and that he was to be evaluated. And so, you know, uh, at a mental hospital, evaluation for competency, I guess. And he left death row, death row, and he would never return there. And I remember how I got the news about this was that Peppy called me and she asked if I'd seen the paper that day and I told her no that I you know I normally didn't get the paper and she said that they were going to give old Ronnie a new trial and I was confused I remember thinking like what are you talking about what and so I said you know let me go get a paper and I'll call you back and so I went to the post office where they have papers outside for sale and bought one and sat in my car and read this very lengthy um, article and some of the, you know, different quotes and things from, from the judge. And I'll just point out that... Um, it says, C's reasoning for granting Williamson a new trial exceeds 80 pages of prosecutorial mistakes. And I remember reading this and, like, being so confused. And there are names and connections that I had never made in this case. I felt like I was not even reading the same, like it wasn't even the same case. Um, and I'm try trying to find a, a quote that was, I'm sure I'll find it later, but but anyway, th this article just really kind of blew my mind. But of course, again, there's nothing about Debbie. There's nothing, you know, other than her name and, you know, that she was murdered. And also, you know, it states how they're going to do this DNA testing, which at that time also, 
keep in mind at this time, that was relatively new. And no one had really ever looked or had anything, you know, had any knowledge of the whole DNA stuff other than the O.J. Simpson trial. And, I mean, that was so over everyone's heads and confusing. I mean, this just seemed, again, like we weren't even, wasn't even understanding how this could even be the same case. And so I just became more and more angry and I drove to the newspaper office. And I remember I, the, the author of the article um, was a man named Roy Deering, and he worked there for our paper. And I remember I went in and I asked where his office was, and they told me it was up the stairs and to the left. And I marched myself, I guess this is my, kind of my first advocacy effort, I marched myself up the stairs and pretty much just gave Roy Deering what for. I told him, you know, that my family was sick of this, that they never ask anything of her family, that they always, you know, there's always quotes from his family, and, you know, that this was just bullshit, basically. And he told me, oh, I, you know, I've, I've contacted, I know Debbie's sister, and I just, I said, no, you, you did not contacted her, because I just got off the phone with her, and nobody's heard anything from, you know, anybody. And I was just furious, and I threw the paper at him, and I remember I walked out. And then, such as life and karma, I guess, um... About 17 years later, Roy Deering would turn out to be my oldest son's English teacher and favorite teacher. And I actually asked him one time at a parent-teacher conference if he remembered my little outburst. And he said he did not, that he did not remember that. Um, and maybe he didn't, but... I did apologize for for behaving that way. But again, it was just so shocking and I you just don't know who to lash out at and like I said, very confusing and the article is probably the longest one that was ever written about Debbie's case. And so he was going to get a new trial and there was going to be all of this you know, evaluations and testing and all of this stuff. And at the same time, I was primarily working with adults with severe mental illness, you know, right after graduation. And so I felt like it was incumbent on me to attend this competency hearing that they were going to have for Ron Williamson. And I remember I w walked in and Peppy couldn't go. And I walked in and 
it was in the little, what they called the little courtroom at the time. And there was nothing but maybe like a little three-foot wall that separated me and him. And again, like, I'm sure he had no idea who I am. And there wasn't really anyone there. And how he looked was so shocking to me because that's not at all what I had remembered and remembered that he looked like. You know, he had just become this old man and his hair was like stark white and he was missing teeth. And I quickly realized he was unmedicated and I sat and, and listened to them question him. And his responses were so, I remember he kept, he would refer to Debbie as the deceased. And he was clearly not well. And I realized very, you know, soon that this wasn't any kind of ploy or trick or anything like that. That he was really, you know, haunted by these things. And I remember that the lawyer had you know, he was asking him short questions, but his answers were kind of long and odd, and and I found myself watching him, you know, watching his lips and watching you know, him talk, and he, like I said, didn't have any teeth, watching his mannerisms, and he would bob his head and the tone of his voice And he, at one point, his lawyers asked him about something about the TV. And then he got on kind of this rant about that the, the sports broadcasters on TV would taunt him and say, you know, why did you kill Debbie? And, and again, just taunt him over and over and he really had no understanding that the other people in the room if they were to hear that same thing on TV that they wouldn't be hearing that like he he couldn't that's how little he was in touch with reality is that he didn't even understand that the things that he was hearing and stuff no one else was hearing those things which was you know, that was significant for me. And I just eventually was kind of overwhelmed. And I think I, I think I left right after his testimony. And I went to my car and I really 
contemplated how I was going to call Peppy, how I was going to tell her that this man was very, very sick and that there's no possible way that he could aid in his own defense. And so finally I, you know, gave her the call and she, she, you know, knew why I was calling. And she asked me how everything went and I told her, you know, I, I didn't know what the judge would say, but he was very, very sick. And I didn't, I didn't know how any of this would go, but he was not well. And she said, you know, I hate to hear that. Um, you know, I think she knew that, you know, this was, this certainly wasn't going to be the end of it. And it certainly would not be. So, it would be a couple more years after that hearing and after that decision but in the next episode we'll talk about how the answered prayers of Williamson and Fritz became this Pandora's box of hell for my family so you can go to defendingtheline.com for other information and updates as well as Defending the Line on Instagram. And I thank you again so much for listening.